Hello everyone and welcome to the Dyslexia Life Facts Show. I'm your host, Matthew Head, and in this episode, I'm talking to Lee Eldridge. He's the founder of Thriving Business Dad, where he supports dads to solve the challenges of being a dad in business. He has over 20 years of experience working with athletes and business executives, which includes professional rugby players and football players. He does this through his company called Cognitive Athlete. I'll put links to Thriving Business Dad and Cognitive Athlete in the show notes, which will be available at dyslexialifehacks.com forward slash podcast. Welcome to the show, Lee. Thank you for having me, Matt. Pleasure. No problem at all. So I thought the obvious place to start with you really is where did the interest in sport come from before we get into coaching? <laughs> um, well, as it says on the tin in terms of being dyslexic, mm. academia was not something that I really enjoyed as a young kid. <laughs> yeah. um, and in primary school, P days were way more exciting <laughs> to get to or if you knew that I had, if I knew I had football after or cricket. So it was my way to kind of express myself, I suppose, as young at a young age where spelling tests and maths tests weren't really my forte and weren't things I enjoyed. That was my opportunity to, you know, express and in, in, see some success in in life, I suppose. And then yeah. it's led on to playing lots of different sports. And I suppose the natural kind of progression to that was wanting to help others, basically. And I, my coaching career started, I would imagine, I suppose when I was 17 years old. Um, okay. I was quite keen in swimming as a kid. Um, and a friend of mine was like, look, come come down this weekend. There's a level one swim award to do. So over two weekends, did it. And then luckily there was a swimming kind of pool next to my school. and the lady who ran the swimming club was just like, look, we're looking for a young teacher. Do you want to come? And so, yeah, I was getting paid a good amount of money <laughs> um, teaching kids to swim, whereas my friends were stacking shelves in Tesco's and other various supermarkets. <laughs> and then, yeah. you know, kind of, I think probably my most memorable, is, memorable kind of understanding of that was when six-year-old kid fell into a swim pool in Spain, very close to drowning, massive fear of water. And then kind of his parents, you know, bringing him back, saying, look, you know, we need, and we understand this is a life skill and kind of guiding him all the way through to be able to get back in the water, swim a whip, swim a length, jump, yeah. that kind of stuff. And that was like that moment where I'm like, okay, this is, this is pretty cool. And, and that was it basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Imagine that kind of moment where, that kid must have been absolutely terrified. Yeah, it's pretty tough to, you know, even get him kind of poolside to start off with and lots lots went into that to kind of get him to to where he was. And so yeah, it was it was an amazing kind of experience and I thought to myself, you know, that's that's where kind of success lies in some yes, respects. Yeah. So I want to kind of roll back you mentioned in sort of talking about your interest in sport, about being dyslexic at school, were you aware you were dyslexic at the time where you just knew you were struggling? No, so I did my A-levels. I did two years at college and then went to university straight in at second year. So I, I skipped the first year. Our lecturer was like, right, okay, instead of hand typing this paper out, you know, we're going to do an exam practice. I wanted oh, to no. handwrite it. Did it, um, not in an exam scenario, but just at home or whatever. I brought it in. And then he's like, um, I think, have you ever been 
you know, you, you, you're dyslexic, aren't you? And I was like, no. And he was like, yeah, I think you are. Uh, I think you need to go get assessed. So luckily, you know, obviously getting assessed in university is, is paid for or was paid for back when I did it. Um, and then, yep. So all the kind of positives that came from that from a support point of view in terms of a weekly meeting with, you know, a lovely lady that kind of sat down and went through work or studying and then extra time and exams. So that would have been when I was 20, I suppose. So I'd managed to kind of somehow get through A-levels, somehow get through college into university um, with a lack of support. Yeah, so I'm at the 20s. There's quite a few people come on this podcast that tend to be sort of university, so early days union stuff, just as I guess it pinches even harder at that point. Or like a story like yourself, where you hand a thing into a lecturer and they're like, uh, do you wanna do you wanna talk about this a bit more? <laughs> do you exactly, think yeah. looking back when you, you finally knew that it was dyslexia, they'd be like, Oh, that's why X happened in school or Y happened in school. Yeah, I think especially in primary school, I think you know, we're talking late 80s, early yeah. 90s. If I look back and some of the vivid memories that I had were were hugely negative in terms of, you know, spelling tests and reading out how many you got right and people yeah. laughing at you. And, and and that environment is just never set up to be able to let people thrive and learn. You know, and what's the stats? One in five kids are dyslexic and... I don't think a fifth of the time that teachers spend learning to teach is spent on teaching dyslexic kids. I think that's now that I've got a young family and you you kind of external to that environment because you're not in there that school, you're not in the lessons. It's really tough to kind of see or, or think why is this not not being addressed, basically. Um, and, you know, I still see it in schools today benchmarking, spellings, you know, and we're just kind of, to a certain degree, I suppose, repeating the mistakes that we have made down the line, basically. Um, and so, yeah, it was, it was, primary school was pretty tough. Um, secondary school got, you know, got better because you can pick and choose a little bit more on what you study. And, you know, if you have a bit of a passion about something you're studying, it, it's not as much of a grind to to get in there and get it done. Um, and so I think the positives that have come around from it is or was kind of, I couldn't be a last minute dot com kind of assignment type of person. You know, I had to get it done at least a week in advance so that I could go into the meeting to sit down and, you know, go through it. And, and ultimately, whereas, you know, uni mates kind of up till two three four o'clock in the morning and then handing things in i was just like that there's no point you know it's gonna it's gonna end in disaster basically um so yeah so i i think that it depends again your your past you know i think somebody said to me it was quite cool you know the past is isn't it's a school not a club so you know you're not kind of in the club of whatever you're like, look, this is stuff to learn from. So I think in terms of my own kind of inner workings, I've kind of come to terms with with those kind of memories, basically. Yeah, yeah. And it's really interesting. How flat my A7 uni would be able to 
do all nighters on various lots and lots of energy drinks <laughs> and um, somehow turn these blinding reports in. And I've been grinding out for like two, three weeks at that point. It's like, how? How can you possibly do this? Running towards the box to post them in at the last minute after they've been awake all night. And I'm like, this doesn't work. <laughs> Surely it does not work. <laughs> There's a funny thing. So did you keep your hand in competing in sports for very long because obviously you said 17 you started touching on the coaching and doing swimming and worked your way through there I was always keen at golf um, so that was kind of went to college to a bit of golf and, and bits and pieces like that then went to university golf wasn't really a thing there so I started playing hockey and again level one hockey started doing a bit of coaching and once you kind of go down that sport route and you want to get a little bit more serious about it then you just you can't play it play it at the weekends because you're you're kind of coaching or you're oh, traveling course, yes yes because you'd be playing at the same time as you should be coaching yes yeah yeah so it worked for a little bit of a few years and then kind of i was like right the goal is to to work in professional sports um so a master's was kind of the next logical step from an education course, point of view yes. for now some people say a rubber stamp but there's there's huge grounding in doing an undergrad, but there's there's big bigger grounding in in doing oh, a masters. Okay. Yeah. And yeah, once you start working in professional sport, that that's you know your your weekends <laughs> are are gone. Depending, you know, you, I was lucky enough to to play a couple of football games here and there with some mates because we played on a Sunday, which means you can play on a Saturday afternoon. So there's there's there is opportunities, but it's pretty much done and dusted really yes yes uh, i can see that and yeah it makes sense doesn't it that you're just you're doing the coaching at the same time as all the games that happen so it's really interesting you have to have a master's to be a professional sports coach so how did you find the master of I, I mean my degree is in engineering so it's probably quite different to doing sports coaching is there quite a lot of practical elements to involved or is it a lot of studying theory or how does that work and how could you tailor that to suit sort of the dyslexic thing you have at the time? Um, I think that, you know, sports science undergrads get a huge kind of disservice because people think, oh, you just turn up to university and you play a bit of sport <laughs> and that's it. Well, it's, it's quite an academic yeah. course. You know, there is, you know, especially first couple of years, there is psychology, sociology, biology, physics, biomechanics, there's lots that goes with it. Um, and the master's program is exactly the same. You know, there's no kind of like points because you're, you're, you're good at sport. Mm -hmm. Um, I think again, from a, a dyslexic point of view or, or just a studying point of view, again, if, if it's something that you enjoy doing, so I'm hoping that most people who've decided to do a master's is, you know, it's kind of a very, specific kind of year or two years to spend your life um you should in theory have a quite a bit of passion about <laughs> yes. it so if you have that bit of passion then it, it makes life a little bit easier it's easier to get focused it's easier to you know whether you want to talk about i suppose adhd and add and the links with dyslexia and, and dyslexia sorry and both ways back you know sometimes concentrate for me, concentration is, is is tough. You know, my mind wanders, it walks off, it it goes to different places. Um, so again, it's kind of creating the right environment to to do what you need to do. Like I look at people on trains reading a book, and I'm just like, you know, or stood up 
going up the tube, reading a book. And I was like, how is any of that information <laughs> going into your brain and yeah. being stored? And I'm just like, no, for me, if I'm reading and I want to take something on, it has to be silence. I have to be here on my own. It's kind of, yeah, yes, it's a nightmare. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember, remember doing that. I, I also have the Pavolian response with that reading where I end up going to sleep instead because I was reading bed. <laughs> so... Obviously, the Masters, at that point, you knew you'd be statement dyslexia because you picked up at 20s. What what, tri- what did you change? Two parts of this question, really. What did you change personally? Because you're like, now I know what's, what's happening. I will change this. And what support did you get as well from the, sort of the outside? Um, I suppose label is like a, not a, you know, a great term, but it was good to... Not necessarily say it's not your fault, but I think that a lot of dyslexics usually blame themselves. You know, there's a big area where, um, you know, you believe it's your fault that you are this way. Whereas, you know, once you, I suppose, lay it and you start to read up around it and you read stuff about bits and pieces of it, you you get into that kind of understanding that, there's a whole wealth of information out there that that you can start to access, you can start to learn. And also, I think from a support point of view, it's kind of nice to sit down with somebody who is an expert in working with people with mm. dyslexia mm. and they've seen or they they can start to kind of guide you through bits and pieces, basically. Yes, yeah. And it was there any particular things that you really stood out for you as something you're like, yes, this is great. <laughs> um, I think, obviously, in terms of just talking to to that individual was, was really good because I think there's moments where not just from a kind of technical point of view in terms of, right, when you study, <clears throat> you know, use lots of different colours, mind mapping, all, all those types of things. Mind mapping for me was a real big mm. big area of kind of it was just yeah it was amazing to kind of be able to mind map for an exam and just see that as a, a visual thing whereas obviously from a sports point of view i was always quite good with kind of the visual and the kinesthetic because that's what we we see we do we see we do we see we do but um yeah so that was kind of it to see how to take all this information on a piece of paper and then draw it out. And that was quite a, a really good thing for me, basically, I'd say, from a support point of view to really go down yes. that route. Yeah, my map's really popular. And did you ever use any software where you did kind of mad post-it notes on the board kind of um, person? No, I was more kind of two A4 pieces of paper stuck okay. together and a big kind of colourful thing and lots of drawings and to try to... Because sometimes, from especially from a sports science, and you probably get it from an engineering point of view or or to try and take those words and build pictures in your head from a, from a memory point of view. Um, and it is really helpful. Yes, yeah. And it's interesting you mentioned about the sport world and the moving around the kinesthetics because, you know, as dyslexic thinkers, seeing that kind of stuff is quite easy for us, isn't it? So I imagine your, your strength in coaching comes from sort of being dyslexic and using that kind of thinking to build into it. Um, 
how did you find that when you got into the world of professional sports? Because sort of fast forward a few years after uni and you've got yourself into, well, you probably had to grind quite hard to get into professional sports. I imagine it's quite competitive. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Um, Yeah, I think that the... I suppose that the the big outset is that you you see you see people, but there are there are lots of things happening out out outside of the world of of sports and training. You know, there's lots of stuff outside of it. It's not just time spent in the gym or or running around. There's these you know we just see them as athletes that entertain us and and go out to perform, but you know they they have relationships they have families there's there's lots more and i think that that from a a dyslexic point of view is kind of an interesting thing that you see somebody who's struggling or challenging or or challenged sorry that you know that there's there's deeper things going on all the time with people i think that's where it 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 can be quite opening for somebody to to have not necessarily a, a learning difficulty or anything like that, but to have a bit more appreciation of of what goes on, and I think that that then transferred more into kind of the corporate stuff I do because sometimes we can see people who are very successful, um, you know, very experienced, good titles in big companies, probably earning good money, and you think right, success, happy days, and then actually when you start to peel back a few things. There's there's some struggles going on. You're not the first athlete coach who've got on that then moves their way into the corporate world. And uh, what I've heard is it's not usually different. <laughs> it's like just dealing with competitive people. They just don't run around and push push bikes around or anything. Yeah, the you know the. I think sometimes we we try to force similarities too much in terms of sport and and into the business world because it it, it feels good for. For people, because in sport, you know, this idea of, you know, better never stops, you know, we're always kind of trying to get these marginal gains. We're always black box thing, you know, all these areas of like what have come from, from kind of world renowned practitioners into this kind of environment. And ultimately the, the biggest difference in business is that nine times out of 10, you do not get to choose when you perform, you, you know, you don't say, right. We are competing on Saturday on a three o'clock. All our week, all our prep, or, or you know, all our build-up is all surrounded by by that three o'clock kickoff. Whereas in business, you know, every day there could be a three o'clock kickoff. You, you just don't have that kind of control or element to it. So, you know, we would play on a Saturday, for example. Sunday, the players would have off. Obviously, we'd say to them, look, go do your recovery sessions, go use the pool, blah, blah, blah. Monday, you come in. Monday, normally in the morning, is a bit of a kind of a debrief. Depending on what sports you are, you'd have kind of some units, talk about each other, bit of light training, do some, you know, do some stuff in the gym. And we would then just slowly basically ramp it up to a Tuesday and then pull it back down again for a, for a Saturday kickoff. So um, there's this whole, what we would call a micro-periodized cycle, so a small cycle that we go through, even during the course of a day. But for me in business, it just doesn't really work like that. 
there's all elements where, you know, I see it, especially, you know, some of the management consultancies that I've worked for is that, you know, they finish a big project and then the next day they're on to another big project. They're always, they're never kind of like, right, finish this big project. Let's just take one, two days to, to, to zone out and to have a bit of a think of like what went well, what didn't go well, blah, 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 blah. That process is going on, but there's also another projects already kicking off. So their brain is already kind of half on that, half on that. So yeah, I think we try to kind of squeeze a lot into that similarities model. Um, and I do think that, you know, the the whole kind of paradigm of well-being and performance is something that we really we get a lot in sport, but we don't really get in business. If yeah, that makes it does. Sense. It was kind of interesting. I was thinking my own my own work, where it's like, yeah, cut the day slack straight into the next project. Um, and you were saying about the analogy to sport, where you have the recovery days. It's like recovery days in work <laughs> don't necessarily happen, and it's it, it's an interesting point. And I imagine it's a tricky sell to a company that hey, you probably should take a couple of days to to stop think, reflect, write this all down before we get launching headlong into the next shiny thing. Yeah, because, and also the difference is then professional sport, you know, the career is, is yes. short. Yeah. Professional rugby players anywhere between uh, maybe some injuries, but normally, you know, 30 to 35 is the, 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 the ballpark for people retiring. But in business, you're looking 60, 65. It, it, it's an endurance game. It's a long-term kind of com- competitive cycle. So, and this is one thing that I really kind of try to get across with people is that high performance and all businesses say we're high performing. Well, I really don't want high performance because what you want is sustainable high performance over longer periods of time. We don't just want... You know, in, in sport, we never just want us to win a one-off match. We're competing in a championship where we need to win multiple games. So sustainability is the one. And so that's where kind of, you know, how that ex- that one day or two days off over the course of a year. But if you think of from a sustainability point of view, that might stop burnout, risk, you know, underperforming, stop them leaving for a different company like there's all yes yeah definitely and uh it it is isn't it you know like you see people are wired and fried and it's the difference between particularly as we record this in january so quite a lot of companies may have had a shutdown over christmas (laughs) the rather dark-eyed people who left at the end of december to the bright sparky people who come back in january after a week off of christmas celebrations and not working at all and it's it's surprising how much that sort of stop the whole company stops can make a big difference to how people are when they kick back on in January. Yeah, I think, yeah. You know, we we finished playing our last game. Most of the athletes, they'll have four weeks off. Okay, they'll do bits and pieces. But, but you know, Christmas really for lots of company is a complete yes. halt. You know, there's... Whereas I think even if people go away in the summer or whatever, the, the business is still turning over you know especially with the dads i work now if, if they're they're founder owners that it's very difficult especially early stage or even mid-stage to really step away and not 
you know, even though people are saying, look, don't worry, we've got it. In the back of your head, you're like, mm, I wonder what's <laughs> happening here. I wonder what's doing. Did he do that? Did she do this? Did yeah, they do that? Yeah, definitely. So one point I wanted to circle back around to was you were mentioning, obviously, with sport, you're kind of peaking for Saturday and then dropping off and coming back up. But you, with business, you don't necessarily know when go time is. It could be three o'clock on a Tuesday afternoon and then again on a Wednesday and nothing on Thursday. How do you coach people to cope with that kind of sun dynamic of load rather than kind of, because you know, some people really like to know what's going to happen and other people seem pretty fine with the whole world moving underneath them. They just kind of carry on like a duck on water. So if we, if we work backwards that there was, there always needs to be a lip, some recovery yes. at some point. Um, so a lot of the dads, for example, I work with, they, you know, they're under huge amounts of stress at work. So they kind of hide this, this emotional, you know, so we look at we look at the well-being from a, you know, the four pillars of well-being. You've got mental, physical, social, and emotional well-being. And so most people talk about, I would say, mental as their mental health as being the biggest one. And then some people talk about physical health, but kind of social and emotional kind of gets put back to one side. But what I mean by that is, you know, we're under that pressure and especially leaders or you know, people look to you and like, you can't be panicking because you're the leader. And then obviously you go home and again, you might be under a stressful situation. Don't want to, you know, if the business isn't doing well or you've lost a client or, or whatever it might look like. And we kind of hold in this emotional turmoil and it's like, right, when, when does it come out? And we then, if it doesn't come out or we don't, select a time to let it out then it will come out at some point whether that's an argument with a colleague or you get home and you know you shout at your kids or your wife or partner or whatever whatever it might be so what we have to understand is that we if we have a stressful event so that tuesday whatever it might be client meeting or whatever it is that as soon as not as soon as it finishes but after that time there has to be a period where you're like right okay let's just breathe let's just reflect let's just try and learn from that what that's going on now again if we flip it to pre you know our physiology matches our psychology and our psychology matches our physiology so we can do lots of things in the build-up to something very stressful i.e again like breathing you know doing some really simple things to kind of set us in the right state so for me when we talk about performance best performers in the world if you look at them and they're equally talented they're equally worked as hard whatever it might be it's just the person who's in the best state at that point in their in their time that that wins basically the person who can get into that state the quickest or whatever it might be so whatever we can do with that now for those people that love this kind of topsy-turvy all the way on they just have to be a little bit kind of more understanding of having some awareness of, because normally when, however you just define stress, stress is very different. People define it in different ways, but you know what your triggers are of when you're, when you're under stress, we really want to try to spot them as early as possible so that we can 
do whatever we need to do to to build them in. And the flip side is that actually stress is is a really good thing that people don't get. It gets a really hugely not negative connotation because people are like, oh, I'm so stressed. <laughs> da, da, da. Right. But, but, but you and I wouldn't be having this conversation if 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 over the course of our lives we hadn't been either we hadn't been put under stress or put ourselves under stress to to mm. get to somewhere. You know, stress ultimately does does change you and positive or negative, it's it's down to you basically. Yes. Uh, yeah. I guess it's as you say, making sure you look after the four pillars and building the de stressing parts in so you're not coming home and you know the cat gets it, so to speak. <laughs> yeah, and I think that you if you look at the pillars that you know, just because one wobbles or or, you know, Mental health, you know, we can really do lots of amazing things to support our mental health by taking care of our physical, social, yes, emotional. Yes, yeah. So, you know, I think Paul Merson, the ex-Arsenal football player that's obviously gone through depression, being an alcoholic, I think he had a, a TV show where he did a walk and he was talking about his stuff and he just made a really good comment. He's like... Depression is like a friend that just wants you to be on your own. So people who are struggling with mental health, you, you just want mm. to be on your mm. own. Um, so that is where that social connection, I think that we're, we're not great at this because of just the way that things are. And that's where things go. Yes, yes, I could see that. And it's, you know, like we're here talking and you know, the theme of this podcast, dyslexia. And that is you cited at school you had sport to save you and i had science to save me and like <laughs> yeah <laughs> we'd have been in pretty bad shape i think otherwise shaking all that off and being able to get on with it but quite a lot of people in neurodiversity do struggle with that kind of stuff and it can feel like particularly if you don't know like yourself when it wasn't till 20 sometimes you go, like, what the hell is up with me here why is everybody else finding this easy so it's hard sometimes i think that go to go back to your original thing where you said, oh, you know, you'd been assessed and, you know, again, not the label, but it's quite refreshing when somebody's like, yeah, yeah, I've also, you know, been assessed as this. And you can have a, a mutual conversation. I'm sure that you would, you know, if somebody's like, oh, I'm into science, oh, I'm into, you know, you would naturally have a, a, a kind of a, a rapport with them, basically. I think that's where, again, getting a, a group or being part of a group of people that are kind of going through similar struggles to you is really powerful. And I think that's, that's, yeah, that's something that, you know, these shows and everyone, not necessarily being more authentic, but just putting it out there that they, they struggle or they're looking to speak to people about this. I think that's a really big, I think it big helps. thing. It certainly helps. Even if you know you're not alone even if it's just somebody coming out the radio in your car telling you that they've had a similar experience even if it's not a face-to-face -face interaction like what yeah well i wanted to kind of move on to you know the interesting kind of thing you've moved into dads in business like specialized down from your professional athletes to your business ex now it's dads and something on your profile is like you had the daddy 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 moment <laughs> So can you tell me what that moment actually is and what that sparked in you? Yeah, so um, November 
21. I was just playing Lego with my daughter. She would have been around four by the time. Um, you know, and we were just playing Lego on the carpet. It was Saturday morning. And for me, my head was kind of away thinking about some clients or, or I need to message this person. And I was just away. And like, then eventually I just heard, you know, my daughter kind of screaming at me because we were playing Lego together. And like, oh, you don't need to shout at me. She's like, yeah, but I, you know, I have been saying it multiple times to you or, or shouting at you for a long period of time. And I just realized then that actually how many other dads are probably in the same situation where they're in the room, but they're not really engaged or they're not really present or however you want to put it. And for me, engagement is is the, the big one. Um, and I was like, right, okay, that's that's not that's not the deal, basically, in terms of how I wanted to to be a, a dad. You know, I know that obviously, you know, there is a provider part of being a dad and financial and whatever that might look like. But that was kind of that moment. I was like, right, there must be other dads out there struggling. And in my pre, well, my other roles, I going back to that state. You know that that engagement state that I learn how to support people to get into that state. Well, my mind's like, well, if people are struggling, then there must be support that they need or whatever. So then that was like, right, okay, let's see what's out there from a research point of view. And there wasn't really much. So then I was like, right, okay, let's go and interview some dads. So I think I'm up to about 85, 90 dads now where just, just interviewing them terms of their biggest challenges, their biggest fears, what that looks like for them. Um, and yeah, yeah, yeah just, it's just grown from that, basically. Okay. And um, how, did, how did you find that? Once you got talking to other dads, um, you could then start blending your sports background and your executive background into how to coach them. How does that look? How are you? And from being a parent myself, it's kind of tricky for me to kind of understand, I guess. But what did you find really started to work? Was there some sort of common things that dads were doing in terms of trying to juggle businesses and parenthood that you really realized that you needed to kind of dig into? Yeah, so if I I put my kind of sports hat on, so, you know, the first probably lesson that you might learn or lecture that you might attend in sports science is, you know, how to carry out a needs analysis, which is basically you know, we're released into the world as sports scientists. You, you, In theory, you could work in any sport because you can sit down and say, right, what is the latest research? What coaches do I need to go and speak to? Um, what athletes do I need to watch? To, to, and then, right, okay, what, what can we do to support these people? So for me, it's like, right, from doing those that interviews and that getting that kind of needs analysis is like clearly there's an element of you know the biggest challenge is always to a certain degree lack of time you know it's the number i've just got no time you know I, I, I'm, I'm trying to build a business um i'm trying to be a senior leader in a business you know the demands are high, so high that i just don't have enough time to spend with my kids that's the, the first one next is that lack of engagement like we touched before even if they are spending time with their kids that they're so wired from 
from work and stressed and you know things going well or or not going well and then the last one is a lot of kind of discussions around what success is and what success looks like for them and where that where that comes from really for me that's kind of opened up the doors of lots of us look at the problems that we have in our life and lots of them are external and actually the main way to sort them out is going more kind of internal and and going kind of right okay so a, a prime example especially dyslexia is like those memories of negativity how how do they affect me or how have they affected me in the past you know in terms of lack of confidence lack of you know, not wanting to write on a board or read out aloud or, to, and you're like, right, well, once you start to get in your mind frame that there are obstacles and that's the way to kind of move forward. And so from, from that, how it looks like is one quite challenging because men are really poor at, uh, at saying, yeah, I've got a problem or I need some help. Um, you know, that kind of first step you know, not. I'm not saying it's like Alcoholic Anonymous, but going to that room and going to a meeting and saying that those words that that's the that's the big first step, I suppose. And then kind of supporting them and say, right, okay, get. We need to get a really clear kind of right. Where do we want to go? What do we want things to look like, feel like, or hear like, or whatever they kind of use as a representation model? And then right, what kind of your values what what do you stand for but more importantly what do you not stand for and lastly like purpose is this big all-encompassing you know you've got to find your purpose got to find purpose but for me it's like right you know what do you feel as if like your passion and what do you want to be kind of doing on a day-to-day basis and once you start to put them all together it kind of helps that well actually it's not a lack of time, it's a lack of energy. So you're doing things that are taking away energy from you, which enable or stops you having the energy to be present, having the energy to engage, and ultimately define a better looking model of success for you. And and, and that's what we kind of start to get into. And it's really interesting to work with lots of different dads from lots of different industries, you know, from... um musicians kind of all the way through to traders there's a real big kind of huge spectrum of of people you work with but you know the big three kind of rules are or or, you know everyone's busy everybody's got problems but ultimately everybody's trying to do the best they can with the skills they've got i think if you walk through life with those three kind of things in your head when you have an interaction with somebody and they are reacting negatively or what we what we believe is negatively you can start to unpick it and say right okay yeah yeah everyone's everyone's got problems and everyone's trying to do their yeah, best definitely yeah and that's a nice way of thinking about it isn't it everybody's busy everybody's got problems and everybody's trying to do the best with the skills they have <laughs> it's yeah when somebody's nearly blowing a gasket in front of you, it's like, well, <laughs> what else is going on with this? You know, um, yeah, exactly. And that's, you know, we react to that external, you know, you just react to it that you you kind of 
for if we look at from from a a kind of stimulus response point of view, yeah. quicker the response, the more emotional that you're going to get. The more time you give it, the more rational. Yes. You're going, you, you, yes. You know, you watch children; they react very quickly. It's emotional. Yes. A, in theory, adults should be able to say, "Well, step back." <laughs> da, da, da. Be a bit more rational, but that's not the case in no, some respects. No, some no. There's some adults really, really are not working them at all, and then you got the absolute Zen masters here, just like no, carry on. <laughs> so you said it's not a not a lack of time; it's a lack of energy. When you say a lack of energy, is that kind of are you referring more to mental energy than physically having enough energy to do everything you want to do? Is that kind of where you're leaning towards, or is it like they've only had four hours sleep and they're just absolutely on? Reserve, reserve, reserve at that point in the day. Yeah, so it's kind of all-encompassing to a certain degree that people talk to me a lot or I see a lot about people talking about, you know, positive mental attitude or mindset. Well, no disrespect that the more sleep you get, naturally the more kind of positive people feel about themselves and feel about their lives. So what are you doing to give yourself the utmost opportunity to have energy during the course of the day. Now, again, you know, sleep and physical activity is a huge part of it, but, you know, what are you eating? What conversations are you having? We kind of touched on it right at the start. Are you doing things that really excite you? And, you know, it's amazing how the surfer in California, isn't it? The surfer that can get up at 4am to go and catch a big wave, but then can't get up at 8.30 to get to his office job because it just doesn't, they don't enjoy doing it. So it's trying to get those moments during the course of the week that kind of keep people kind of excited about life, basically. Um, and not only that, not not just letting them happen, you know, sitting down and saying, right, what does our year look like? Okay, these are our two big family holidays or a, a holiday or whatever it might look like. Well, okay, well, what are we doing at the weekend? What, what, what? And you start to build and build and build onto kind of a bit of like exactly how we would do in sports, you know, that bit of a, a yearly plan of like what what training we're going to be doing, where we're going to be and that kind of stuff. So I think that that is a huge element that comes into play. Yes, yes. Yeah. Having had jobs on both sides of the coin, it's certainly damn so easy to get, to get up in the morning and you know, even work out and do crazy stuff like that before going to work if work isn't fun and Oh, I heard somewhere ages ago that you spend more time with your work colleagues than you do your family once you subtract sleep from everything. Um, so, yeah, I think, you know, if you look at kind of the stats, you know, you will spend 75% of the whole entire time you spent with your children when they're under the age of seven. Wow. Yeah. And then when they get to an age of, kind of, I think it's around 15, 90% of the time that you're ever going to spend with your kids is done. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then, yeah. and then if they like you, you'll probably get to finish off that other 10%. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So that, for me, when I saw that, that it is just kind of, wow, because a lot of the dads I work with, it's like, right, it'll, it'll be okay when, you know, it'll be okay when we're turning over this, or then I'll be able to step back from the business, or then I'll be able to do this. And you're like, Mm. when yeah. when yeah. and it's you know it's a bit like 
climbing the mountain, you know, as soon as you've climbed a mountain, the goal is to climb a higher mountain. And you're like, keep going and going and going until you're like, right, well, yeah. you know, you climb Everest and you're like, well, what's what's next? Um, and it's a shame because especially some of the senior guys in, in corporate is that, you know, they do all this to provide and they just end up, unfortunately, you know, not spending that crucial time with their kids to really get to know them or, or to support them. And I know, it, yeah, we need to provide it. it, it and you're like, right, okay, but there's lots multifaceted that comes to being a dad, especially, you know, and we can go down the kind of discussion of what people expect dads to do, you know, go to work, put food on the table, blah, blah, blah. And I, yeah, of course, yeah, that's the goal. But there is also huge evidence around in the importance of kids having good, strong father uh -huh. figures and, and male figures relationships because, Again, if you if you think of you know young children, to a certain degree, most of their time will be spent with females mm -hmm. until maybe secondary school. You know, I I know for me, if I look back now, my first male teacher was probably by the time I was eleven years old. Yeah, yeah, I I can't think of a primary school teacher I had that was male. You know, and that's no, it's no. no, you know, so if your dad works, you spend all mm -hmm. your time with your mom. So as as a role model that, <laughs> and it, it, it's a, it, you know, I call it the dad paradox, whereby dads are trying to, to be the best dad they can be and whatever it might be. Yeah. And so, yeah, that's, that, that you know, making sure that when you do step in the door, you've got energy to, to give them is key and, you know, m making sure that you have some system to shut down from work and to change into kind of change your clothes or whatever it might be or become the dad is really difficult. Yes, I can imagine. Yeah, yeah. It is, and that's why I think commuting for work is actually hugely <laughs> beneficial. People are like, oh, I can work from home. I don't have to commute, yeah. blah, blah, blah. But you don't have that you know, ride on the train or drive or cycle or walk, whatever it is, just to de-stress and just to work out all those things so that hopefully by the time you get to the front door, you open the door and you're like, right, new yeah. role, dad, yeah. parent, wife, husband, yeah, whatever it yeah, might be. Yeah, the windscreen, the car's taken all instead, yes. <laughs> Whereas now, you know, we're in an office or whatever, in the bedroom or and you just take all that stress just straight into that environment. Yeah, even silly stuff is even if you work from home and you just wear different clothes to work from rather than pajamas or something like that. Or yeah. Yeah, the wrong Yeah, or just, you know, going for a walk, you know, just finishing and just taking a little bit of a walk around outside or that block yeah. or whatever it is to kind of bookend. And again, always goes back to getting into the right state and think, right, okay, look now my priority becomes yes. them. Yeah, definitely. And I think you know, it's an interesting thing. It kind of got me thinking, a slight tangent really on, on that point is the talking to somebody, the previous guest in this podcast, how they would mask a lot about their neurodiversity and their personality. So they're a different person at work because they have to be the person they feel like they need to be. 
And that's got to be exhausting to then be able to decompress from who that is to the parent role or just you, I suppose, is a real hard thing to switch between. Race. I guess not masking helps, but for some people, that's a really hard thing to do and an easy thing for other people. So. Yeah, and I think the kind of not fake it till you make it or being someone else who you can't, you know, who, who people around you or what you think you should be, eventually that will that will come and bite you yes. around because it's so energy sapping yes. to to have this internal conflict going on board that nobody can see. Um, you know, if I think back to my kind of start off of coaching and, you know, I'd be a junior coach and you look up to the senior and you think, right, look, that's the way, that's it. <clears throat> so then you put this persona on to copy how they did and what they said and what yes. they did. But it wasn't... Yeah. You were basically just being an actor of of them, not doing it as well as them because you were not them. <laughs> yeah. And you would take up all this energy and then eventually you'd have to revert back into you. And then people would be like, well, hold on, one minute like this and then now you're like this. And then, you know, you're so fake or blah, blah, blah. I think from a dyslexic point of view, I think that's one thing is, you know, that's massively common, I reckon. You hide this this thing, whatever you want to, to call it. You... You get really good at school and making sure you didn't do the things you didn't like doing because you knew that ultimately kids are not very forgiving at that age and they will find a way to to laugh at you and make fun of you. So you, I don't know about you, but you'd always find their way not to have to read a oh, book at oh, school yes. out loud. To <laughs> yeah. Not to, you know write up on the board or do this or anything that you knew. And I think to some degree, it's quite a, not necessarily, it might be a good thing that you, you learn a lot more about your, yourself quite early on down that, down that line. And I think, you know, I always, yeah, Fridays was always, especially in primary school, Fridays was always a conundrum because we always played football on Friday afternoon, happy days, (laughs) but it's always kind of, in, on Friday morning, so it's like, right? How do you how do you man kind of manage this stress of just getting this done? Basically, yeah, yeah, yeah definitely. I think think you know, as much as you wouldn't want other kids to go through it, the sort of the resilience and the self search you have to do at a young age sometimes can help later on in things. But yeah, and I think that with that resilience factor, yeah. But sometimes it'd just be great just for somebody to pull you across and just say, hey, look, you're doing okay. It's going to be, you know, I think that has been a process of kind of internal work where it's like, look, you know, things happen for a reason. And if I, if you went back, it'd be great just to be, you know, on your shoulder and say, look, it's going to be okay. Yeah. You're yeah. going to be all right. You're yeah. going to make it. Yeah. Instead of like, sweating on a a Friday as a nine-year-old doing spellings. It's not the most important thing in the world. Or, you know, it's not life-defining moments. No, it's not, even though it feels like it at the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How to do spellings, write on the board. (sighs) Yeah. (laughs) Please, can we not do this again? (laughs) Yeah. 
Okay, so I'm going to start winding the podcast up now. And uh, every guest that comes on this podcast gets three rapid-fire questions from me. They don't necessarily need rapid-fire answers from yourself. So I'll dive into the first one, which is, what prejudice have you had about dyslexia that has been proven wrong? Okay. Um, I think the easiest one is that, that you're lazy. Yes. Yeah. Oh, he's just lazy. Well, no, no, I don't. That doesn't work like that. You know, see, no. That's the problem. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's a bit of a curse, particularly in the sort of school system where you're one of the hardest working people there and you're also branded the laziest person there. So it just doesn't work. I can't get it to work. (laughs) Okay, rapid fire question number two. If an alien landed and you had to describe dyslexia to them, how would you do it? Um, that's a good question. I think that it is, in simple terms, we or dyslexic just see things differently. Mm. You know, and I think that's that's a huge superpower. Um, basically, I think that's that we would, you know. Just as they see human beings as different beasts, you know, there are different beasts within different <laughs> beasts. I think we're just, just, yeah. And it's not necessarily a bad thing. It's not necessarily, you know, it's hugely positive that, well, in an age of diversity that we're looking yeah. for, that hopefully more will be, yes, will come out. Definitely, definitely. Okay, and the final question is rapid fire set. And seeing as this is the Dyslexia Life Act show, what is your favorite Dyslexia Life Act? If I went down now, I think it would have to be that how far or being come really trying to drive deep into how technology is going to support dyslexics moving forward. If I think back now to, you know, at university when I was first assessed and then kind of got you know, access to a speech and text kind of technology and thought this is kind of game changing. That was 20 years ago. And now the the way that technology has moved forward to a certain degree, not that any kid now, I'm not saying they'll have it easier, but I think that there's more access for them to be able to utilize technologies. And I think that comes real full circles back to the education system is like, right, Okay, what will what, what are we preparing children for the future, or are we just kind of going through the motions of teaching them in the past? <laughs> yes, an interesting question, <laughs> and I'm sure I'd love to discuss with some teachers, but no teacher really wants to talk to me about it. <laughs> yes, it's a tricky, tricky one to I think get stuck into quite a thorny subject. That one, isn't it? <laughs> Okay, Lee. Well, I want to thank you for taking the time to come on the podcast. But before we uh, sign off, is there anything else you'd like to add? And where can people find you if you'd like them to? Um, no, no. You know, thanks for the opportunity. It's great to kind of obviously, hopefully, you know, send some messages out there and, and speak to people you know, with challenges all across, not just dyslexia. Where people find me mostly on LinkedIn in terms from a social media point of view. Um, but yeah, and 
I'll give you my email address and if you put that on the show notes, I'm more than happy to have conversations with with anyone, but especially kind of business dads. You know, I'm always keen to interview and kind of keep the research going because it supports me and what I do, but also in a greater long-term picture as well. Well, thank you once again for taking the time to be on the show. I will link to Lee in the show notes as well for people that want to find him. And that just uh, leaves me to thank everybody else for taking the time to listen. And I'll speak to you in the next episode. Goodbye for now.